Andre Natera is a renowned expert in both the food and hospitality industry. Every week, Andre is going to invite the restaurant industry's biggest innovators, entrepreneurs, and experts at running the pass into his kitchen. Heat up the oil, set out the sauces, it's time to run the pass. My guest today is Barton Seaver. Barton is really the king of seafood. He's written several books on it, including The Joy of Seafood and American Seafood. He's worked under Jose Andres. He's taught at Harvard, and he's had uh, a job with National Geographic traveling the world and uh, teaching about uh, sustainable seafood. So my guest today is Chef Barton Seaver. It's good to see you. How are you today, Hi, friend? Sir? Oh, I'm so very well. It's nice to, nice to be back with you, friend. Carrie, yeah, no. my, my, lo- my lovely wife, sends her love, says hello. Oh yeah, please tell her I said hello. As I'm as I'm looking in the background, it looks like you got a pretty big, impressive library behind you of hopefully some cookbooks. Uh, and- yeah, lots of cookbooks, lots of vinyl, old '78s jazz and blues, the stuff I listened to that just never translated into modern media. And uh, yeah, and a lot of books I keep around to remind me that I like to think I'm, I'm, I, I like to think I'd like to be smarter. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I'm really excited to jump into the conversation today. We got a lot to talk about, a lot to cover. But for people that don't know you, um, and can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit of uh, what your story is and how we got to this point? Oh, boy. Yeah, just a little. I was born and raised in a very multi-ethnic neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I guess to answer your question, it's like I, I am a person that sees food as a a vehicle, a tool to not only understand everybody around us, but to make them better, to make ourselves better. It is a tool of peace. It is a tool of strife. And all of that came from my upbringing in Washington, D.C. So in this little neighborhood, Mount Pleasant, it was Eritrean, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, Andrean, you know, Salvadorian, uh, whites, blacks, I mean, you name it. It was a lot of embassy workers, uh, group homes for uh, college students and, and just it was this incredible cacophony of humanity but the major populations a lot of them were had been fleeing civil war in their own countries uh, and come here you know whether it was the sandinista conflict in in el salvador the uh, civil war between eritrea and ethiopia you know when, when you're fleeing for your life uh, you take with you uh your family and your traditions uh and in their new country it was the traditions it was the food that was so readily on display uh, it was little bodegas which serviced their needs that, you know, had these heady spice aisles that had, uh, you know, goat meat and carambola and just all these ingredients that were simply not part of the American canon at the time. Uh, and just that idea that food is not only a means to explore our physical world, right? literally what the hell is carambola and where does it come from and who eats goat and where does it come from and spices that come from everywhere, but also that food defines who we are and when we really want to put ourselves on display what do we do we invite somebody over for dinner right you know and we share with them and so that idea that that food is this powerful conduit that's who i am and professionally and and personally and and how that's manifested in my life well uh you know there's a lot of details there but did you get your start like uh, a lot of us chefs have in in culinary school Uh, i got my start in a grease trap actually um, so <laughs> that sounds uh, like a better story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I decided that college was not for me after high school, and um, 
and it was my father that suggested, you know, he said, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? And I said, I was like, well, I was thinking I was just going to live off you for a little while. And he's like, uh, let me ask you again, what are you going to do? And I didn't really have any idea. Uh, and he suggested food and, you know, food in our house, not only just in our neighborhood, but food in our house was always cooked from scratch. Dinner was a big deal. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. It wasn't fancy by any means. It was a lot of frozen vegetables and whatever was on sale, but there was always that engagement aspect of it, the cooking aspect of it. So when he said cooking, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I found a, a conduit through some connections into a restaurant and, you know, zero experience and showed up and, you know, the first day on the job, he's like, uh, well, the grease trap backed up, uh, get after it. And uh, only my, from basically my knees to my toes was the only part of me that was not in the grease trap. I was being held uh, by my shins by a Vietnamese man named Tree uh, as I unclogged this beast. <laughs> and uh, and you know what I did, Andre? What's that? I showed up for work on my second day. There you go. It, it, clearly, clearly Tree holding onto your legs was the, <laughs> was the support that you needed at that time. Right. I mean, that was my buffer for the trauma of that. So there we go. So what, what kind of restaurant was it that you first started working in? I, you know, it was a, it was a classic sort of, now that we think about it, classic new American cuisine of the late nineties. Okay. So, you know, one of our signature dishes, uh, well, the chef's signature dish was a a sesame crusted pan seared tuna served over a little cone, a perfectly shaped cone of sushi rice with a, uh, a um, wasabi creme fraiche and a, and a hoisin drizzle, you know, it's like, like and then, you know the next item on the menu was a, a head-on shrimp tomato pasta and, uh, and it was fun it was delicious it was good food based on good ingredients but it was that classic new american of like <laughs> i'm just gonna do what i want and uh, you know it's, it's funny that you bring that up because a lot of uh you know i got my my culinary start roughly the same time uh mid to late 90s and the food was so different but when I cook for myself or when I think about food that I crave, I crave that food from the late to mid nineties. That's what I want to eat. I enjoy it. Like if someone's, if someone's giving me a tuna with wasabi crema and sesame seeds, I'm, I'm going to be pretty excited, especially if it's on kind of wonton chip or something like that. Yeah. Do, do, <laughs> yeah. do you like your salads really tall? <laughs> oh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully they're yeah. topped with something crispy and, you know, about you got lot, lots of, lots of, lots of fried leeks and uh, fried parsnips. Like, I mean, that's the jam, man. That's it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it was a, it was a different era. It was wild, but back in that time, um, Stephen Piles, Dean Ferry, Mark Miller, um, you know, the Southwest cuisine was exploding. You had Wolfgang Puck. Um, so on the East Coast over in Washington, D.C., what was the food scene like then? You know, I could speak to what it was like in the Southwest and the West Coast. What were you seeing emerge at that point in time? You know, I, I was somewhat aware of it, uh, but D.C. was a steakhouse city. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, D.C. was a city that didn't have a uh, much of its own culture in terms of, I mean, it was, it was a black city. You know, it was... Mm-hmm. Um, and there was certainly this incredibly vibrant culture there. And there's so many foods that I could talk about uh, from that uh, areas of the city. But in terms of fine dining, uh, you know, it was, it was all about Congress. Everything was transient. People didn't live in the city. Uh, there just wasn't much there. Uh, and it was steakhouses, uh, you know, sort of the, co- the common denominator coming out of the 70s and 80s of American dining. Uh, but you had, um, oh, God, uh, Jean-Louis Paladin. Right. Uh, who had been working there for a while. And then you had you guys like Roberto Donna. Uh, you had Michelle Richard, you know, mm-hmm. who 
these legends of cuisine that are also just legendary personalities, all three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really paved the way for uh, another generation of chefs like James Beardwinner and Jeff Boobin, uh, mm-hmm. who did a number of places and he spawned a whole bunch of beard winners as well. You know, after that, and really when, when I emerged as a chef in DC was right when DC had come into its own mm-hmm. and finally gained the confidence and the consumer base to say, you know what? I'm going to try some pretty esoteric shit. Like I'm going to put myself on a plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the first when it began working. So it was interesting because I came up at this time when all these legends were still there. They were active. They were the three stars, you know, and mm-hmm. we, we had um, Patrick O'Connell and in a little Washington satellite to DC. Um, but then you had this sort of new, new generations that had taken over as the, the it places. Uh, and you also had the old uh, food critic um, and, you know, the, these sort of legends of, of how the DC food scene evolved, who taught it to eat well. Uh, all those players were still there. And it was just a really cool thing for, I mean, I, I was 24 years old when I had my first chef gig of like, wait, whoa, whoa, I am standing on the shoulders of giants. This is amazing. And there was a real um, uh, camaraderie in the city that that really bolstered a lot of young chefs. So. One of my favorite uh, Roberto Donna moments was on, I want to say he was competing on Iron Chef America and the time's running out and he's still rolling pasta and <laughs> not, not caring. And then I think he, he went back to challenge a second time. Uh, and yeah, it was a bit of a disaster, yes. <laughs> the legends of the of the dc culinary scene so at a certain point you started working uh, you know speaking of legends you started uh, working for jose andres yeah uh so you know i bounced around a little bit i did go to culinary school uh, and then i i was uh, running a restaurant I, and i taught up at culinary institute of america uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of years in a, in a fellowship position so i taught meat and fish butchery and, and identification uh, and then bounced around a little bit and i ended up living over in spain uh, for a while looking for a job. I, I as part of that, I, I ended up in Africa by accident. Uh, and Wait, ended up staying. Did you, did you jump on the wrong flight? What do you mean you wound up there on accident? <laughs> no, I, 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 I was on a bus and this is down, down in the South and, um, down in Andalusia and I was on a bus and I, I got off and I was trying to get on the other bus and I, I speak Spanish, but the Andalusian dialect, like they leave out every second and fifth syllable. Um, it's just hard and I didn't get it and I didn't communicate well. And I got kind of pointed in this direction towards this, this other bus. And I just kind of bought the ticket and walked on, uh, you know, we're walked into the portal and the door closes behind me. It's a fucking boat. Um, and (laughs) two hours, (laughs) like two hours later, the ferry, the ferry docks in Ceuta, uh, Spanish enclave in Morocco, and it's like oh, okay, whatever. Here we are. Spent the night, and the next day, I uh, I just I just walked across the border into Africa, into Morocco, and um, yeah, and ended up staying there for six months and working as a fisherman off the coast of Esweta, and yeah, it was really cool. But anyway, so you, you asked about Jose. Yeah, yeah, we digress. Back to well, Jose. Apparently, yeah, yeah. So I ended up in Africa by accident, went and ended up back in Spain, and then Jose called me in Spain and asked me to come back to DC and uh, help run Haleo, which is his flagship at the time. 
And uh, I worked for Jose Andres. This was at the moment in time in which Jose Andres was ascending to Jose. Yeah, he, he is he is the one name chef now, like, uh, and and deserves to be so. And it was just this heady, incredible time when, uh, just in that that pure vein of creativity, but also possibility, when people just latched onto him and. Uh, you know, and, and, and for people that don't himself, know, he was he was just coming from working with Ferran Adria at the time, and you know, the the whole Spanish cuisine. I want to say at this point in time was really taking over the culinary world. Yeah, well, long before uh, molecular gastronomy took over as the it cool sexy thing, tapas were. Uh, I right. mean, you remember this, and and even mm-hmm. I mean, every restaurant was like, "Oh, tapas are cool." Okay, I'm going to take all my plates and cut them in thirds, <laughs> you know, and like, "Hey, we're tapas." You know, I mean, it's a great concept, and and you talk about an evolution in American dining. Like, wait, you want me to share something with somebody else? You know, it's like and order more things than just an entree. You know, like, whoa, what a cool concept, right? Um, so Jose sort of revolutionized American dining in in two ways. Right? He is largely credited, though many were before him, of sort of really popularizing and introducing tapas, but then also molecular gastronomy. Uh, but this was also at the time when he was chair of the board of DC Central Kitchen, uh, mm-hmm. a, an anti-hunger organization that uses leftover food, collects leftover food from restaurants, hotels, catering, and then uses that as a means to fuel a culinary education program. So it's not about feeding those in the breadline. It's about using bread to end the need for the breadline. And um, it was revolutionary thinking that colored everything that Jose is doing now, um, you know, with World Central Kitchen and LA Kitchen and other things. And it's sort of, it was just this amazing time to see a master emerging. And the food was good. The food was really good. Like, I mean, I was cranking out 10,000 plates a day of tapas, but it was really good. We had 129 mm-hmm. things on our damn menu. <laughs> they were all really good. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot there. So, yeah. so I, I don't, maybe it was his first cookbook. Uh, maybe I think the book was Tapas, right? Jose Andres Tapas was maybe one so, of yeah. his first, first cookbooks. I, I, I have to admit, I stole a lot of dishes out of that, out of that book during that time. I was, I was all about that food. Um, it, was, it was definitely revolutionary at the time. And you said everyone was doing tapas. And I, and I was in California at the time doing tapas as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but that, that book and, uh, and Rick Tremonto's uh, Amuse Bouche. Oh, yeah. Are like the two, two most plagiarized. <laughs> the juice, the shot glass of juice amused was, was everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. I had a whole, uh, he had a whole chapter on juices. So at what point did you go in, uh, and, and do your own gig? Uh, I left Jose after about a year and a half. Uh, I just, the right opportunity came up. Uh, in a neighborhood I really wanted to be in. It was a historically black neighborhood. It was it was the next neighborhood over basically from where I'd grown up. It was just an exciting little bistro called Cafe St. X, which was, it was just doing its thing in, in a satellite region just over in this place. And it just had all of the, just the buzzing confidence that, that I wanted. Um, not ego. It didn't take itself too seriously. It's just, it was a place with really good beer, really good food, and just very straightforward. And, you know, and, and quite frankly, yeah, I, like, I mean, I was a young man, young men have egos, young chefs have even bigger egos and, and of a very particular sort. And I saw, I, I knew that I had something to say in my career. I didn't know what it was yet, I, but I knew that I wanted 
to build a platform for myself to learn and to grow. And of course I was doing that under Jose, but that was always going to be Jose's show. And, and as it should have been, I just recognized though, that my path wanted to be a little more autodidactic and um, self-learning and, uh, and, and this opportunity came up and, and I jumped on it and it was the right thing. And I never worked harder. And, uh, you know, it's still sort of the halcyon accomplishment in a way of, of all that I've done. So, so at what point um, do you decide that enough is enough and you leave uh, on top? <laughs> um, well, there, there were sort of a number of waypoints along the way. I just, I mean, you know, I mentioned the ego and, and I, the really important thing that happened to Cafe Senex was I, like, I very quickly got over that because I realized that the most delicious ingredient on the plate is, is never me. It's never the chef. Um, you know, and, and so I challenged myself to make the best burger in the city mm. and just be the place. And, you know, we just had a killer roast chicken and just good dishes that were smartly, uh, cleverly, you know, conceptualized, but just executed right. And, mm -hmm. and menus that made sense and a good wine list and the best burger in town that I really worked hard to source the beef on and really worked on the bun and I really worked on the cheese and I brought in the wood grill and I, you know, it's just, I did everything right. And mm -hmm. like, that's the dish I'm most proud of in my whole career is that burger. Is that burger? And, Tell me about uh, the burger. What, what, what was in it? It was grass fed beef cooked over wood grill, seven uh -huh. ounce filet, seven ounce patty. Uh, uh -huh. You know, we pre-seasoned them about 20 minutes or so. They all came in frozen. I was, I was actually buying the meat. Uh, these were dairy cows from a uh -huh. University of Pennsylvania program, uh, dairy apprenticeship program, and just really flavorful meat. Uh, they had to be ground with a little extra fat into them, but just I really worked on the beef, and it was so good. And I knew the blend of the wood that was in my my grill, and just. There was nothing special about the burger other than that everything in it had been cultivated and paid attention to. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, just <laughs> when, when, you, when you humble yourself to the goal, you know, to the, to the what you want to achieve, um, you become part of a process and, and you, you become a conduit for it. And that, that was sort of the, then the path of, the rest of my career in restaurants. And uh, I then had opportunity to, to leave St. X after opening a couple of restaurants with them. Um, one of them being a tapas bar, by the way, opened up my, what, what I was considered sort of my flagship restaurant, which was called hook. It was a sustainable seafood mm -hmm. restaurant. And what does sustainable seafood mean? A, a number of things, but how did that manifest on the menu uh, in diversity? You know, we, we served over a hundred different, 150 different species of seafood in the first two years. And what we did is we just created this, this ecosystem of trust with our customers, but also with fishermen. We were working with 13 different individual fishermen, you know, and we were doing enough volume that they would call up and be like, hey, I caught this. We'd be like, fine, send me the whole mm -hmm. boat. And people would come in because they were getting absolutely delicious, freshest possible fish that they never heard of. And it was fun, experimental, and it was cool. But, you know, bearded brotula might sound really weird, but, you know, actually it's really just a delicious flaky white flesh fish with this soft, sweet, succulent curve to it and this wonderful aroma of it, almost like parsley and baked potato with this subtle nutty butterness at the back. Wait, what was the fish again? It's like bearded brotula, man. It was that idea that we were, again, just really focused on the ingredients, presenting them simply. And, and that became 
sort of my bailiwick. I mean, and then seafood had always been my passion in terms of ingredients. But what happened though, is we ended up getting a lot of attention for this. Mm. I was still very young. I was 27 and uh, top 10 lists across the country. I mean, just rising star awards and and things that I I do believe we earned. Uh, An incredible team of folks, Uh, you know, people working with me front and back. But what happened was that, uh, you know, I got taken away from what I really liked doing, which was the cooking. And this is what happens to chefs. It's like, oh, did you do your job well? Great. Okay. Now you don't get to do your job anymore. Now you get to do another job. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up um, having opportunity to, to walk away to become an explorer for the National Geographic Society. And I came on the heels of- Did, did of you a, take the wrong, the wrong bus? To get, to get that no, no, this, this one, you know, that story did impress them. They were like, yeah, you sound like one of us. Um, but uh, that, that opportunity had come because of all the work we'd been doing in sustainability and thought leadership around that. You know, and I had just been, yeah, I had just gotten to the point where I knew that a kitchen alone was not going to provide the platform I wanted to continue to learn, to continue to grow, to invest myself in communities. And as you know, a kitchen deserves 110% of your attention, focus, energy, and effort. And I just, I knew I couldn't give that anymore. And I owed it to my staff to, to back off. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough decision. I, I do want to go back to what you're talking about, about sustainable seafood, because I feel like that word's just kind of thrown, thrown around, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the culinary world, is this sustainable? What, what does sustainability mean to you? And, you know, I know you do a lot of education. When you're teaching about sustainability, what would be some of the key things that you would um, encourage chefs to look for? Kind of taking a, taking a step back to provide a context for sustainable seafood, it's, it's a really difficult concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, seafood itself is an incredibly difficult ingredient. Uh, in this country, for instance, 90% of the seafood we eat is imported. Seafood is a highly regionalized product, right? With uh, dozens of species swimming in waters uniquely all over the place. And yet the way that we as Americans think about seafood, it's we actually only eat 10 species. 95% of what we eat is only 10 species. Shrimp, tuna, and salmon represent 65% of the total that we eat. So there's been this great commodification of the oceans and all of its diversity and so that is one massively complex global you know, economic system to try and unpack in terms of sustainability. But then there's also just the sort of this strict metric of like, okay, if there's a hundred fish of this kind in the sea and we take 80 of them, they're not going to do so well. <laughs> but if we can take 60 of them, well, you know, maybe they'll teeter, but if we take 40 of them, great, they'll rebound and replenish and you know, so there's all these sort of different competing metrics around sustainable seafood that um, make it tough. But I mean, basically, just just hey, seafood that we can eat today that supports jobs and that is healthy for our bodies and that will be there tomorrow for others that would like to eat it too, and to catch it. One of the things I remember, uh, you know, I know you have a, a course through Ruby. For, if people don't know what Ruby is, it's a it's an online culinary uh, training platform, almost like a culinary school. I guess maybe you could even call it a culinary school online. Um, but you talk about introducing people uh, to the to maybe it's just the types of fish. So you have you know like uh, salmon or salmon like fish or or halibut or halibut like fish. So um, I really think that when you uh, the way you explain it is. Uh, so easy to digest. So could you get into that just a little bit for the audience? Sure. 
so the, yeah, the, the seafood education, it's it sort of, it started off as my mission to, for people to fix seafood through our behaviors. Uh, you know, we were the root of the problems in our ocean. So it was up to us to solve them. And I still believe that very much, but I now see that seafood is actually a tool to help fix people. I want more people eating more sustainable seafood across all demographics. And the way to do that is to educate chefs, to create generations of evangelists or, or even just seafood competent cooks. You know, seafood is not chicken and halibut is not cod, is not haddock, is not salmon. There's an incredible diversity and in, in array of skills in there. And that's what seafood literacy, the course with Ruby is, is about. Uh, if you look at the traditional culinary education models, seafood has not been taught to a really fine pixelated degree because the industry hadn't demanded it. But if you look at seafood as a category of ingredient that I believe should be aspirational you know, because of environmental, economic, and public health benefits, we as chefs should be serving more of it, serving less red meat, serving less land animal proteins, more plant-based diet, uh, but inclusive of more seafood. So it's this effort to educate. And so how do you educate an ocean worth of species? Well, you begin to categorize them. You begin to uh, highlight where they are similar so that you provide avenues of entry for a cook that has cooked a lot of halibut or cod, but has never seen a bearded brotula, but can look at it from across the line and say, I got a pretty good idea what to do with that. And that idea of culinary categories I mean, this is nothing different. This is no revolution here. This is how wine lists are organized. I mean, this is, you know, you like light-bodied Pinot Noir? It's great. Okay, here's your list. Some of them are from Burgundy, some are from Oregon, some are from Chile. Like, I, you know, pair like with like to create comfort and familiarity. And so we do that. And in, in that way, I can teach you an incredible amount without having you need to know a lot. And that is, you know, it's the tools for self-learning uh, moving forth. So, mm. so when, you, when you think about as, a, as an industry, and when I speak about the industry, I just mean, you know, your general chef and restaurant population, what, what is something that you think that we could all do better, specifically surrounding seafood? I, I simply not be scared by it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, seafood is just a difficult category, perishability, price, it, I mean, et cetera. There, there's a lot of sort of obstacles to it. And when you throw in the sustainability aspect, I like to say that seafood's the only food considered guilty before proven innocent. You know, you have to work to figure it out, to find it, to sell it. Uh, and what I think chefs could do differently is, is really look at seafood in the way that we've looked at heirloom vegetables, in the way that we've looked at uh, artisanal cheeses, at, in the way that we've looked at charcuterie. You know, I, I mean, a pig is a pig, right? Yeah, until you ferment it and put some spices on it. And then you're, you're talking literally about an entire world of evolutionary cuisine and flavors and all this. And it's, huh. Well, all of those categories, like within our career you know, tenure, I mean, those have all exploded, you know, as, as these chef pathways for innovation, for creativity, for exploration. And I want chefs to see seafood that way, uh, to see it as a means to deliver on the promises they make to their guests of guiding them, of providing something really great, compelling for them, but also that they continue to learn and stay engaged. I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how you're doing during the pandemic, 
I know, uh, I know you've been cooped up at home a lot lately, um, spending time with your beautiful family. But I, I know we talked offline a little bit about this, and I wanted to get into it a little bit about, uh, you know, food culture and, and you know, uh, why it's important right now. Maybe more, you know, I know you're super passionate about it. Maybe why it's more important now than ever. Pandemic has caused us to reflect, all, all of us, um, you know, and, and, and what matters then sort of in the before times, what are the things we we're just doing out of momentum versus the things that we've really used as, as bricks in the edifice of our, of our lives. You know, food is certainly one of them, but in the pandemic, it's, it's odd because it's become this dichotomy. Like there is nothing in the world I want to do more than invite people over for dinner and to feed them. And there's nothing in the world I want to do less than more fucking dishes. Like, God damn it. Like, Oh my God. You know, just this, the constancy of it, the repetitiveness of it um, has opened my eyes to this whole other sort of experience that a lot of people have with food, that it's, it's something you have to do, not want to do. And uh, it, it's, I think, made me appreciate even more the importance of a food culture in that, yeah, this is something you do have to do. So let's teach people how to love doing it. You don't have to do it well. You just have to, what are the pathways? What are the conversations? What are the cultural you know, artifice? What that values food production in the home, uh, that values the connection to food producer. I mean, we can go all the way back down the supply chain. It's incredibly important. But just that idea of like, how do you convince a young parent that this is really sexy, what they're doing? That's just really cool. and. Now, I have no idea what I'm going to do post-COVID. There's an evolution to happen here. And um, that idea of food culture and sort of instigating almost a meditation or, or sort of a, you know, being present in the moment of finding value in the things that we have to do, you know, in the mundane of life, finding the glory. That's really sort of been one of the principal conversations or directions that I've, I've been going in uh, during pandemic around food. Whoa. That's pretty heavy. It's one of those things that uh, I've probably cooked more at home during the pandemic than I have in you know, maybe in my entire culinary career. Um, you know, I'm so used to cooking in restaurants and then, you know, we slowed down a little bit at work and I'm not there as much. So I'm cooking at home for the family. And, you know, obviously I'm not the only one, but uh, I, I do believe that those moments when I was at home cooking, boy, it really changed uh, my appreciation, my perspective on food, and not only that, but the time that uh, that, that we enjoy with with loved ones, the communication around the table, like some of those uh, traditional family values, just kind of crept back in, just simply by cooking more at home. It was pretty, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, but uh, you know, also the the cracks in it all. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what you just described is the beauty and the wonder of it all. But like, yeah, but I have a near five year old, and I have an eight month old, and I have a wife that works you know, and, and we try and split up and just, just the structure of our lives. And it's a lot, it's a lot. And the idea that dinner is going to be always this sort of, you know, family circle moment, you know, coming around the table, it's like, absolutely not. It's rarely that it's rarely that, you know, and, and our kids are good eaters too. And, And so it's like, we have that going for us, but still it's like, wow, like really focusing on the reality of this, letting go of some of that, um, the romanticized notion of what dinner, what dinner should be. It's like, yeah, well, 
dinner is actually going to be Annie's mac and cheese again. That's usually that's what my just dinner the way is. It is. That's just the way it is. And that's okay. <laughs> now it that I'm working deep, more, it's back to it mac is, and cheese and raviolis. It's like, it is deeply okay to serve ravioli out of a can to your family for dinner because you just have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> in this pandemic, we have been so fortunate to, to have options and to have our health and to have the ability to care for thriving children. Um, you know, thriving meant something different. Success meant something different in February of the beginning of February, 2020. Thriving to me now means I got a roof and I got food and, and I have it tomorrow. And that's really caused me to just, as with a lot of people, you know, do the self-reflection. And one of the habits that I've picked up is, is of gratitude of mindfulness and you know, though <laughs> dinner can be chaos and be tough and just draining over time, uh, feeding people is also, it's an act of love. Mm-hmm. It is an act, it is a act of deep kindness. And I always stop and say that to myself. I remind myself of that when I'm somewhere in the cooking process. And it's made my food better, I'll tell you that. Uh, it, you know, just that realignment with purpose has been just enormously helpful. And that idea of just giving gratitude, expressing gratitude. Uh, every day I reach out to somebody in my orbit, in the constellation of people I've known to just say like, hey, you know what? Hey, Bill Disson, chef down in North Carolina. I think you are incredible. And that thing you posted on Instagram last night was ridiculous. Hey, chef, I'm thinking of you. Be well. That's it. Just little missives like that. And they make all the difference. It makes all the difference. And, uh, it, you know, it, it gives you that feeling of connection. But also, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it sort of provided a, a hint of direction for post-COVID times. And like, what are some of the things that, what, like, how, how is this manifested for you? Honestly, I... You know, you mentioned mindfulness and, you know, being in the moment. I, I thought to myself when I found myself with a lot more time on my hands, I, uh, I thought, well, how can I, how can I get better? That, 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 that was what I want to say is how can I, how can I get better? And uh, my goal last year in 2020 was to see how many books I could finish, uh, whether it was audio books and, and, you know, reading them as well. So I got through about 60 of them. That was my, that was averaging nice. a little bit more than a book a week. Um, and I started when the pandemic started. So that was in March. I was pretty proud of my goal. So I crushed a ton of books. I really focused on picking up another language. So I'm working on my Italian. Uh, it's not so good. It's not as good as my Spanish, but my Italian is pretty decent. And then uh, the, the other thing, this is wild because people think I'm joking about this, is I was in the United States Memory Championships. And uh, out of 200 competitors, I placed eighth. Wow. Yeah, it was put on by MIT, you know, smart people up there and I got beat by some, you know, 16 year old girl, <laughs> prodigy genius. And the only reason I wanted to do it was because I said, eh, I don't know anyone else that's been in a memory competition. I could, that's, that's a funny little story. It's like, it's like getting on the wrong bus. Right. <laughs> so I, I did that and I was actually surprised that I did so well, but wow, that's um, awesome. I was just, I was just doing things to keep me, uh, just to keep me engaged. I started exercising more, you know, going for runs, just thought to myself, how can I get a little bit better than I was? Uh, so. That, that was uh, that was me in 2020. 2021, though, is more of the same, uh, more getting better. So it, it almost became it almost became addictive. Yeah, that certainly is. Uh, gratitude, mindfulness, 
um, self-care, it is addictive uh, and yeah. it's incredibly important. You know, there's, yeah, I mean, there's nothing more enfranchising than optimism and self-love. You know, I know, I know we got to wrap up Barton, but um, where can people uh, learn more about you? What are you up to? Uh, how can they follow along? I uh, you know, check me out on Instagram at Barton Seaver. Um, sort of the most up-to-date conduit, but uh, I got a bunch of whole bunch of books out in the world. Um, most recently American seafood and the joy of seafood. Uh, yeah. So please check those out and um, yeah. And our, uh, our online course, seafood literacy, Dot com. Yeah. Otherwise life is good. And the message I'd love to you know, leave people with is uh, just recognize that food is an act of love and an act of kindness. And that uh, in cooking for people, you, you become a hero. Awesome chef. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, fascinating conversation. I always love to learn more from you. You're a prolific man, prolific writer, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Awesome. Hey, thanks chef. I really appreciate you. Your whole team. What you do. Thank you. Well.